0: Tinakoto, I'm Karen Hay and thanks for joining me for the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast, where we dive deep into the NZSA authors' archives. You'll hear New Zealand authors share their experience of living as a writer in Aotearoa, including today's author, who for a long time kept her writing secret. Ruth Dallas was a poet and children's author who also worked with the famous New Zealand editor Charles Brash at Landfall. However, when she began writing, she did so in solitude and secret. She told Michael King in February 2000 about those early days of her writing life.
1: Yes, it made it sort of rather odd, especially among my friends at work, and I kept it secret but my first work was published when I was only 16 in an adult magazine that was the New Zealand Railways magazine and beside Dennis Glover and uh, Fairburn, Robin Hyde, there was a page in the Railways magazine for poets. I was quite pleased about that. Were you
2: aware of who those other writers were at the time?
1: Yes because um, they were the young poets who were coming on. I think I've made a quotation about that in my autobiography that I somewhere in the uh, Railways Magazine said the young poets that were coming on were Fairburn, Glover and so on. And I remember some lines that Glover wrote on that page. In fact, when I saw him in 1973, when we were sitting together in a hall, I remembered some lines that he had written and published about between 1936 or thirty-eight in the Railways Magazine. And I quoted these lines to him and he said to me, I wrote that. I said yes I did and I don't suppose anyone else in this room will know. It's all right, it was very good. And there was a New Zealand mirror too at that time. It was a monthly magazine. I had some poems in that. But I had been writing, as I've said in my autobiography, from the time I was about 12 till I reached my 18th birthday. We had a whole page of of the Southland Daily News which is defunct now we had both sides and a lot of people, no TV or anything to distract the kids then and we writing and reading was a great amusement.
2: Were there literally no other writers in Invercargill at this time that you had, had any contact with?
1: Well my first contact with another writer was when I was in the army and uh, I, I entered a, a, a New Zealand army Poetry competition, I put in two poems under a non plume, and I won the first and second. It was only a 10-shilling prize, I think. I remember shouting the girls, the other girls at work, some morning tea on it. Um, and but Fred Miller, who was in another department, came to my desk and asked me if I had other poems at home because he wrote for the news and wrote books on historical Southland and so on. He had worked with Robin Hyde in the newspaper business. And uh, I said, yes, I had other poems at home. And he said, well, why don't you take them up to see Mr. Holcroft and see what he thinks about them? And it'd be nice for you to do that. I felt a bit shy about that. However, I took some up. I don't think yeah I gave them to him, but I don't think he took any of that on that first visit, but I remember he told me to come back in a year. I remember thinking you know a year and a day from the old uh, fairy tales. So I went back in a year and a day and um, he took some of them for his literary page, which was very good. His South and Times literary page, of course edited by him, was very good indeed. His own essays were very good too, gracefully written. I read every one. And um, he said to me uh, about one of the poems, I should send it to the listener. And that was that Milking Before Dawn poem that everybody, unfortunately for them, has had at school. (laughs) Your best known yes. (laughs) And uh, it was published. Who who was the editor of the Listener at the time? Gordon? Oliver Duff. Duff, that's right, Oliver Duff. He published that. And uh, of course, I've said this before, I went into a bookshop into Whitcomb and Terms, as it was then, and saw this landfall, March, the first number, 1947. Well, I had been reading and getting Whitcalls to get for me the English new writing. But I thought, oh, well, really, here's a, a, a quarterly being started up and the editor lives in Dunedin. I could hardly believe it because I had to send to England. I used to get the English listener, too, and um, read all the writers, New Zealand writers, I could get hold of, John A. Lee and so on. Um, And uh, so I sent some poems off, and I think I sent three. And uh, I think he wrote back and said, did I have any more? And I, this is from memory, and I think I sent another three. And um, he published some in the second number of Landfall. That was 1947. Uh, so Mr Holcroft and I used to sometimes, I still call him Mr Holcroft because of my deference at the time, you know, but later of course I called him Monty Holcroft. Um, he took some, he took a half a dozen poems, it's, it's detailed in my autobiography, I can't be expected to bring up something from sixty years ago without it being not exactly correct in dates. <laughs> okay.
2: But tell me about uh, Monty Holcroft at that time, Was did you feel he was an approachable and a kindly interested? kind of
1: person? Oh yes, yes he was. I went upstairs and uh, to see him and he had been downstairs playing billiards, he told me, quite a f- so- folksy sort of fellow and he used to ring me up from time to time or I rang him and he rang me when he was moving to Wellington to tell me he was going. He was very friendly indeed. Why did people find him not so later?
2: Oh well at the age and stage that I met him, which was when he was well into his listener um, years, I thought he was a stern and forbidding person, but I then discovered that he had that outward manner, but that inwardly um, he was very concerned about nurturing other writers. And the kindness was there, but you couldn't always read it in his face when you met him. He had a rather stone-like face to my way of thinking. But I was much younger than you. Oh yes. And he was much older by that
1: time too. Yes, well he didn't usually publish poems, in fact I think my poems were the only one he published in the Southern Times, this was the Times not the News. So after I had some poems in Landfall and uh, The Listener, the New Zealand Mirror had faded off with the war and so had the Railways Magazine, they couldn't keep going, the, the Mirror just got thinner and thinner like a person wasting away.
2: It, am I right in in thinking that it was later in the 40s that you actually started to meet people like Charles Bash, Basil Dowling and some of the other?
1: Yes, well of course I was in the army for uh, years, you see, and I didn't do any particular writing in those years. After I was turned 18 I really didn't know where to write for, where to send my work. Well there was nowhere to send it. but. Uh, I always had a great interest in, I was particularly interested in reading uh, Agilvy's biography of Glover. He he recalled to my mind a lot of writers whom I knew about at the time, you know, of course Gaskell wasn't in Verkagel at the time, but I... But you didn't meet him? No, I didn't meet him.
2: He's still alive and going strong. Is he? But not
1: writing. Oh no, he hasn't written for years. He wrote some good stories. And I also uh, got, uh, the short-lived New Zealand new writing, Ian A. Gordon, you know? Uh, yes, yes. I, I was really just mopping up all the writing about New Zealand that I could get. But um, it was really after I got into uh, Holcroft and Bresh that um, I sort of settled down to. And, of course, I was out of the army then and leading a more normal life and sort of settled down to study. And I used to sit up very late at night studying. I used to go to the library and get a lot of quite heavy books and read and read. I took a job where I could read. I remember someone said to me, we couldn't read in wartime, could we? We had to knit socks and uh, scarves. This was the wife of the doctor I worked for. And I didn't say anything, because I don't usually say anything. But I thought, well, I've knitted scarves and socks too in wartime. And I might as well be reading as anything else I'd always had read. Because um, I lost, you know, I had only the sight of one eye for from the time I was 15. And all books that had small print were closed to me. And long novels, anything that required a great deal of eye attention Well, the world got very dark after that. I can tell you, only half the light. Well, when some poems appeared, I don't know whether it was um, the first three or then the next year Charles Brash made a small anthology in Landfall, picking out the poets like Oliver, Wilson, anybody can see who they all were. They're listed in my biography anyway. And Basil Dowling wrote to me out of the blue. He was a librarian at the university library and he wrote a a most wonderful letter encouraging me, saying that he hoped I'd go on writing like that, that he had felt so moved by the poems that uh, he felt he must write to me. And from that time on, Basil and I have been the best of friends. He moved to England, I think, about 1954, it's about the time I moved to Dunedin, really, And he has continued to encourage me to this day. He's still alive. He's 87 or 89, something like that.
2: Where is he now?
1: Who? Basil Dowling. Well, he stayed in England. He lives in Rye in England.
2: Oh, in Rye. Oh, that's a Henry James connection.
1: Yes, that's right. Anyway, he has trouble with his eyes, and he's got all the complaints of an old man now, but he still writes, you know, supporting me. You know, even when I told him I was having a book of stories out this year, he wrote and said, Oh, if they're as good as your children's stories, they'll be good, and I'm looking forward to it. You know, all this sort of thing, you know, that you really, a writer really needs.
2: We do. And were you in communication with him by letter then, before you actually met him?
1: Yes. Yes, yes we did write by letter, and I went to see him at the University Library in the, above the Clock Tower. Who else did I, did I know?
2: Well, let's talk about Charles. Um, you were obviously in communication with him also by correspondence before you met him.
1: Yes, and he he went over to Stewart Island as a tutor with some pupils, and he came to see me. But before that, three people came down: Bessel Dowling, Charles Brash, the other name, just David, a, Hall, I think. David Hall. That's right. Yes, they came down, and they asked me to go and have dinner with them at the Dishlers. And then I used to go and hear whoever came, Dennis Glover, Fairburn, so on. It's all in my autobiography, where I could che- check the uh, dates, you know, and everything. Uh, Charles was very keen for me to move to Dunedin, and I was very keen for, to move here too, because all my uh, reading was through the Invercargill Public Library, and it wasn't really big enough for me. So uh, my mother and I thought, well, we'd come and try it for a couple of years. And um, of course, Charles encouraged me too. Of course, great friendship was there too. We were, we were friends from that time on till his death. So those two, Basil Dowling and Charles, were the two that really encouraged me. And also Leo Benson, who used to write very warm letters and say that, you know, how much he liked the poems and so on. He didn't have to, and he wasn't really that sort of man. Benzman. He did a very beautiful page in Landfall of one of Bessel's poems. I recently photocopied it and sent, came across it and photocopied it and sent it to Bessel.
2: Did you join PEN at any time during this period? Yeah,
1: well, Louis Johnson wrote to me and asked me to join PEN. And I had a look through my, through my files to see if I could find that old letter. But my files of correspondence went to the Hocken Library up to about 1952, I think. Could be there. Um, But when I recently resigned from PEN, somebody wrote to me and said I had been a member for 24 years by their reckoning. So I don't know.
2: So is your recollection, though, that you did join when you had that letter from Louis Johnson? Yes. Did that, in fact, mean... um, that there were any PEN activities that you were able to be involved in?
1: Not at all. It was, I was absolutely remote from PEN from the time that I first joined really. They never at any time took much notice of anybody working in the South Island.
2: It was very Wellington centre then. Very it? Wellington
1: yeah. and I used to get PEN, I used to see where people had awards or uh, all kinds of things. That I had awards, I had W- awards, and I had a doctorate, honorary doctorate, and CBE, but uh, nobody ever wrote and s- there, from there and said congratulations, or though they did for Wellington people, yes. and never asked me for a photo, nothing. Now they want to know some information about PE, and well, we've never been in contact. No. And then I went to uh um, Sydney conference I had to pay my own way, though there were people who hadn't been in PEN so long who didn't have to pay, you know, specially arranged that they should go. In the last few years, I haven't been able to read PEN because of my eyesight. And I thought, well, why am I supporting PEN this $50 or so a year when I can't see to read it? So I just decided that uh, that was that, and I wrote and said that uh, I wish to resign.
2: As you know, it's now, they've changed the name to the Society of Authors.
1: Yes, it seems to me rather snobbish. I didn't like the change.
2: I didn't like the change either, (laughs) but we were outvoted on that. (laughs) I mean, I think that that we've got so few traditions here with any sense of continuity. Yes. It's terrible that we keep breaking what ones we do have. Yes. everything new names, but never mind. The the one thing about the organisation now you can say is that it is is now a national organisation, and it does have regional Yes, I
1: think my... uh, my doctorate and uh, CBE were mentioned in the local paper here. You have been
2: a president of too, haven't you? I was
1: president right. of honour one year, but they didn't tell me I didn't have to pay my sub that year.
2: <laughs>
1: Nothing, no correspondence or anything.
2: Oh dear.
1: Yes. Never mind. Though they did put me on the Burns Fellowship one, uh, committee one time That's right. yes. Uh, yes. To, I was a judge, you know, on the judge judging part. Right. And That year we put Bill Sewell back again. And uh, Janet. Yes, well I met. Janet one time at Charles's, but I don't remember the year.
2: It was probably the year of her Burns, wasn't it? Which would have been 66.
1: Her first Burns fellow, you yes. think?
2: Yes.
1: Yes, yeah, I suppose that would be the year when she came down. Yes. Very retiring at that time she was, yes. had nothing to say for herself. Janet and I have remained friends since then. We don't see much of each other, but we sometimes talk on the phone, which is something. <laughs> yes.
2: Yes. You, your, your friendship, the friendship with her was very important. To her in those first two years, especially, because it was probably only you and and Charles that she felt comfortable with. Later, when the Baxter's came down, they were also a support. But um, as you know, Janet um, is not a highly sociable person, so there aren't a lot of people she feels comfortable with. But she liked the the low-key nature of your friendship, and as you said in the autobiography, that. Um, wasn't necessarily a specifically literary relationship, was it?
1: No, no, it wasn't a literary relationship. On the other hand, Charles Brash and I was entirely literary relationship.
2: Yes. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Can you say for the tape about the circumstances in which you worked more closely for Landfall?
1: On an occasion when we were talking about Landfall, and he was wanting to go overseas, and he also said that Landfall, all the papers and files and everything concerned with it were crowding him out of his house and home. And um, he didn't know what to do about it. And at the time, I was looking in the newspaper for a job. And uh, just out of that conversation, it was decided that um, we would uh, get an office and uh, he would leave me with all these papers and the filing cabinet and all the rest of it and go overseas for a while. At first, we got an office. It was a room in a private house just temporarily while the UBS building was being refurbished or rebuilt really and we would have an office there uh so um we moved there we we went around second hand shops and bought a a desk and um another filing cabinet and uh i brought down some chairs from home and he brought down a chair and bookshelves We had a large desk, which I think was an old railway desk, which we bought and put there. When we broke up the office, six years later or something, we gave Janet that desk. And she took it with her to Palmerston North. And uh, then when she left Palmerston North, she gave it to the woman next door, who gave it to the um, Turnbull Library, so Janet tells me. And the Turnbull Library had it all done up beautifully and there it is in the Turnbull Library is Janet Frame's desk so that has quite a history.
2: A precious literary artefact it's become and Janet thought it was a bit of old rubbish by the time she gave it away. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, well we always called it the Landfall Desk, even Janet and I called it the Landfall Desk.
2: I've seen it, it was very large wasn't it?
1: Yeah it was very large, well we needed it with sitting to side by side and spreading out all these proof sheets, galley proofs and whatnot. Anyway, he went away a few times while I was there, overseas, to India, and various times.
2: Can you tell me about actually working um, with Charles? Presumably you would do things like um, do the proofreading in tandem, would you, if you were both there? One reading, the other listening? Yes,
1: I did the reading and he did the listening, yes. He donned a pair of glasses and went over it with a fine pointed ball pen and a ruler and um,
2: were you also involved in the assessment of what was to be published and what was
1: not? Oh published? yes, all the stuff that came in, I read. He also gave some some stuff to other people to read as well. If we disagreed, or um, he liked the, he liked the backing of somebody else because in his first issues he said he made a few mistakes. Well, that's natural, isn't it? Yes, yes. And. Um, If he had something that he would like another opinion on, Margaret Dalzell or somebody else at the university, he would also give it to them to read. But we often disagreed. Um, We disagreed about that controversial Noel Hilliard story that made such a row at the time that Charles turned down. I thought he should publish it, but he didn't. Now you see, the difference between his ideas of a story and mine which I've also said in my autobiography was that I liked work to have some relation to reality, even if it wasn't perfectly perfect prose. But he liked to see the way it was written, and he would take some quite complicated prose that the f- subject matter didn't I, th- didn't I didn't think was particularly interesting. So we could, didn't really agree over stories, but um, poems were usually agreed on and. Um, he had that backing you see because I was reading a lot a lot of uh, poetry and uh, had a fair idea about what a poem was.
2: He he was a hugely important figure of course I mean partly as a poet in his own right but also because of that um, midwifery role Um, not simply publishing other poets work or other writers work but working closely with them and developing their writing did he ever talk about how he saw his editorial
1: role? Landfall was his baby. You know, it was everything to him, absolutely everything. And when it fell apart while he was still alive, he was terribly upset. This was after he had given up. After 20 years in Landfall, he gave it up. I don't want to talk about other editors, but they didn't suit him. They just disappointed him. But um, the Bensman, he he wouldn't, he had his teeth into it and wouldn't give it up. And he himself edited it for a while. It was a little, thin, miserable sort of thing. And Charles said to me, I just wish it would die. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway.
2: That must have been hard for him to not only to let it go, but to actually see the standards decline. Yes. And everyone's agreed that it did decline at that period. Oh, yes, it did. I'm, I'm pleased that it's still there. And in a way, it's come back to life The most recent of Chris Price, has been quite good.
1: Oh yes, it's quite different, yes. Well, I too, uh, when Charles didn't so fed up with it, I I stopped getting it. But um, when it uh, began to recover again, I subscribed to it. And I still subscribe, though I can't read it, but I support it because it supported me. And it it has revived. Oh yes, I think it's pretty good now.
2: Can I just uh, ask you a little bit about this aspect of um, earning a living from writing? Um, it's never been a realistic thing to expect, is it, that, that, that you could actually support yourself from the kind of writing you've been doing? How have you coped with that factor?
1: Well, I think writers are better to have part-time work. Looking for writing to support you, I think, it's a vain. Only one or two writers manage to get their... You, you get excellent writers that people must read and, and want to read and they can turn it out like, say for instance, to go to England, Somerset and Maugham, they could do very well at writing. But in New Zealand, where there's only um, a small population and other countries are not particularly interested in us, it's very difficult to make a living out of writing. Janet's done so well because she was fortunate in sending or causing to be sent her manuscript to America, where she got uh, well-known in America and well-paid. And uh, she's never looked back, as you know. but generally speaking, it, it's no use counting on the money you get from rewriting. I, I wouldn't do that. A part-time job or a job from time to time, a temporary job, is really best for a writer in my opinion.
2: So you never had any expectations about being able to support yourself financially from writing.
1: Did never, you?
2: No. no Of the uh, work you have done. Is it the children's books that have brought in most income?
1: Oh, definitely, yes, definitely.
2: Who were the writers that you most were most interested in and most admired as in the years when you became a writer yourself? Were there any that you saw as, as role models?
1: You mean in New Zealand or overseas?
2: I'm, I'm really focusing mainly on New Zealand. Who were the important New Zealand ones in your view? Important for you, I mean.
1: Well, you see, when I was studying, I found that those that knew what they were talking about said, the way to learn to judge your own writing or any other writing is to read only the best, just as you would look at only the best pictures in order to judge when a painting is good or not. So. After having read the best, I, I quote Thomas More because it's good realist writing, and then Conrad and uh, De Pong and all these first class writers. You get very picky, you know, you expect a lot from, from uh, writers. Those are the people that have influenced me, mainly, and Frobert. Um And the English poets are the ones I followed. I always look on the American poets as just a branch off the main tree, really. A lot of people are following the American poets, but I'm not.
0: I'm Karen Hay, and this is the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. We want to take a minute and let you know the results of the latest Writers' Earning in New Zealand report. It shows that, on average, Kiwi writers earn only 31% of their personal income through writing, with over half the respondents saying they have to rely on their partner's income or having another job to survive. For this reason, NZSA continues to lobby for sustainable incomes for writers and advocate against moves to erode their rights. To join us, visit authors.org.nz. Ruth Dallas had always read and been inspired by poets and writers in Europe. Yet after World War II, a personal crisis of belief led her to explore writing from a completely different part of the world.
1: Well, I became aware of the Asian writers through reading and I was also looking for some philosophy of life because I uh, had lost any religion I had in my 20s and I couldn't get any meaning out of life. It all seemed very senseless to me. People lived and died and what was it all about? It was really the main question. And then I found that um, all these questions had been pondered long ago in Asia by intellectuals that don't seem to exist in China now, or India. Some of, the, some of them reached, about writing, much the same conclusion as the French had, had reached, that one should be detached and keep yourself out of your writing. I thought that was really good. That's what I thought too. And after reading the Chinese poetry I thought it better than any other poetry I'd ever read apart from some perhaps Sappho and a few Greeks and I really just sort of fell in love with it.
2: Did the form of say Chinese poetry have any effect on the own of your own forms of poem? Well it
1: wasn't the form it was what they did they the way they Worked What the the poem said, the form of course is quite different because their language is quite different. But they had things to say that interested me. So see, some people say, look in your heart and write. Well, my method is quite different. It's to look out and write. And that's what the Chinese did. And then some of the Indian and uh, Chinese philosophy was so beautiful, it was marvelous. Especially the Buddhism and a lot of the Buddhist uh, sayings and teachings remain with me now and in, in my life like Shakespeare's words they come up and have a sort of sort of suitable phrase for everything that happens in life and it's a great loss that we haven't got these now but I can't believe they won't come back You see China's got so militant and so commercially minded however the Chinese intellectuals, in about the year the Tang Dynasty, and that 700, and 800 AD, they were a bit like the Greek state in that they weren't didn't have daily work to do. They had slaves, and uh, others were doing the manual work, not them. And they would sit around discussing poetry and writing books. And it's so kind of on. a
2: precondition of having culture, isn't it? Yes. If you're labouring all day, you can never really develop something like art.
1: That's right. Yes. And their painting is the same. I love their painting. It's so... Paintings tell you a lot about poetry. There's those. Are, there are a couple of Japanese, which of course they learnt from the Chinese. Right. And they're not concentrating on the human being in the in the painting. They're only incidental, The the, the people that are in the painting. And that's the same with all Chinese painting. Yeah. You have to look in the painting to find where the people are. They're not important.
2: Do you find your way into all that on your own, just through reading?
1: Absolutely, but then you see I'm a sort of loner anyway. Yeah. No, where would I find it? Only through reading.
2: Yeah.
1: It's upsetting me very much that the Dunedin Public Library is going to cut their books by $100,000 this year because that's where I I had my education was through reading in in libraries. And that had a profound effect on me. And furthermore, they didn't look for recognition, the the Chinese, they didn't even sign their poems sometimes. They just wanted to make something beautiful. And we recently had this Chinese splendor exhibition here in Dunedin. And to see a Ming vase and other things like that was really marvelous because there's a great big Ming vase in that exhibition in which there's at least one peacock. I think there's only one peacock in blue, on a lighter blue. And a European view, they would have painted the peacock's tail because it's so beautiful, but not the Chinese. They painted it with its tail closed. Yeah, yeah. And that is typically Chinese. Yeah. They just like that sort of thing to be suggestive.
2: And that has interesting implications too for other sorts of art, doesn't it?
1: That's right, through all their art.
2: You say just enough to be to be resonant rather than to be explicit.
1: Yes, and space also counts for them. You see, there's always space to be taken into account also. Oh, it's, it's a very, very rich source of information. That's just what I did. I, I was drawn to it.
2: I would be quite happy to to leave it at that because we've touched upon the things that um, I wanted to touch upon from the point of view of writerly associations is there anything else in that under that theme that you would like to add
1: all writers I think are rather boring people to meet (laughs) including myself
2: (laughs) yes but as you know there have been groups in the past one in particular I think of was the New Zealand Women Writers Association that again was Wellington based and it really was a social organisation. It was just people who liked to get together and talk about writing, but did very little of it. And perhaps that's the danger of being, um, being sociable about it.
1: Well, <coughs> I'm very fortunate in being one of those people who are just as happy on my own as I am with other people. That was so when I was a child. I could play just as heavily alone as I could with others. And I'm very happy to be on my own. Uh, I don't see how, I really don't see how writing can be taught, but that's a peculiar view, I suppose, because people do set about to teach it. It's something that, um, well, I think I had a gift given to me, actually, in the first place, and I just had to develop it. Just uh, as I've said elsewhere, it's like a singer being born with a voice unless you train it. You don't become a singer.
2: I don't think in any circumstances people can be taught to write if they don't have that talent there in the first instance, but people can, some people can be taught to write better, and they can benefit from having a structure that sets deadlines and things of that sort to make them more disciplined about it. And I think that's where someone like Bill Manhire has had great success at Victoria. He hasn't given those people the talent, but he's helped them to hone it and made them more self-critical.
1: Well, fortunately, there are all kinds of people in the world, and every single person is different, and all we ever see of another person is the tip of the iceberg. You really don't know very much about other people, especially socially. I've been fortunate, really, in being happy in, in that way.
2: In being self-contained? Yes,
1: yes. like
2: well, no, unlike Dennis Glover, you didn't turn to alcohol?
1: No, no, I don't drink and don't smoke. And um, I don't like drinking because I don't like... I like a clear head, and if I drink, I wouldn't have a clear head.
2: We're out of sequence here, but I had meant to ask you, did you have any contact with the Baxters when they were living here?
1: Jim Baxter had a cousin, Jack Baxter. He was a, became a great friend of mine. And they had a house at Brighton, just a stone's throw from Jim Baxter's own home at Brighton. When I was thinking of moving to Dunedin, Charles wrote down and said that Jack Baxter would let us have his house while we looked for a house in Dunedin. So we lived for a month at Brighton, and we got to know Millicent and his father. His father was a very emotional man, and when we when we left from living at Brighton, you know, he, he had tears in his eyes. He's one of these emotional people. And Millicent Baxter was very sort of learned, knew all the Latin names for all the plants in her garden. And even when they weren't even invisible or or in bloom or anything, she seemed to make them appear. (laughs) I thought uh, Jackie Baxton was very beautiful at that time. She had beautiful brown eyes. And um, Jim kept walking in the room and out of the room and in the room and out of the room, but um, I didn't really have any contact with him. Then I saw him once at school, Publications in Wellington, oh, he, when he was editor there. Uh, we had a bit of correspondence about work I was sending there. I saw him at the Writers' Conference in Christchurch about 1951? Yeah, in the early 50s, yeah. I was still in Invercargill then, yes. I saw him there.
2: I should have asked you about that actually how did you why did you make the decision to go to that was it because it was happening in the south island and therefore something you could logistically get to
1: yes i suppose it was really but i always i always went whenever anyone was going to talk about writing whether it was in cargill or Dunedin or wherever you know because i wanted to learn all the time i was just like a sponge something it all up. but it wasn't like that at school it took me a long time to wake up I didn't always get on very well at school because I would have my own way. I wasn't sort of pliable.
0: (laughs) You've been listening to an interview from 2000 between Ruth Dallas and Michael King on the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History podcast. Ruth died in 2008, and Michael King in 2004, so this interview between the two remains a treasured part of our National Cultural Heritage Collection. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks, so make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast on SoundCloud or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by Elizabeth Kirkby MacLeod with audio support by Jana Witter for the New Zealand Society of Authors, with funding from Pub Charity Limited. Noturno by Ottorino Respighi, which you are listening to now, is performed by Justin Bird. The audio was digitised and provided by the Alexander Turnbull Library. I'm Karen Hay, and this was a New Zealand Society of Authors oral history podcast. Kaketeano.